I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to workingcapitalreview.com. Sign up with your email and each day get a new smart post delivered. If you're feeling lousy about the state of politics in America, now might be the time to surround yourself with some folks from the UK. As they surely must ask about us, what in the world is going on over there? The UK is now more than three years into Brexit, the unexpected, unplanned, and so far unfinished move to pull out of the European Union. The latest delayed exit was delayed again when Boris Johnson, UK's permanently disheveled prime minister, couldn't, as we like to say, get the bloody ball over the goal line. Okay, we don't say the bloody part. Instead, Boris called for and got new elections. So, December 12th, UK voters will decide whether to elect a new leader or not. And through that choice, whether to leave the EU or not. So what, in fact, is going on over there? How did they get into this Brex mess and will they ever get out? Few better or funnier or more thoughtful to help explain than Fintan O'Toole, the award-winning writer and columnist for the Irish Times, Guardian, and New York Review of Books. His own new book is The Politics of Pain, Post-War England and the Rise of Nationalism. O'Toole is Irish-born and loves England. Both important facts as you read and listen to him analyze the English psychology around self-pity, colonization, and that terrible EU oppression that, we're told, led to Brexit. In fact, among the surprising insights from O'Toole, at least to this American, is his argument that the Brexit push has less to do with the European Union than it does with England itself. Before my conversation with Finton, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks, and it makes a big difference. Thank you. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Fintan O'Toole. Fintan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's a real pleasure, Chris. Now, you're the expert book writer, the newsman, not me. But if you're going to write a book about UK and politics, you really want to make sure it's released when there's something interesting and monumental going on, Fintan, not when things are boring and no one <laughs> cares. I mean... Yeah, you know... Um... <laughs> well, you see, writing about the whole Brexit business is is very strange. I mean, I write about a lot for for my own newspaper, the Irish Times, and I write about a lot for you know the Guardian in Britain and and, and elsewhere. Uh, and of course, it's a gift that keeps on giving, you know, because it's there's new drama every week. <laughs> there's, there's some it other, really is. you know. Yeah. Uh, but but actually, that's no good for writing a book. Funny enough, because it's it actually the opposite in a way. Because if you're writing a book, you think, oh my god, this is going to be out of date by the time it comes out. You know, so. So you can't really write a book about the process. Yes, and I had my eye on that a little bit. And I've got to say, a lot of what you wrote, particularly in the middle when you're writing about Boris Johnson, I mean, obviously he became prime minister significantly after you had to send the book off for yeah. final review. But you could really read much of it, and particularly much of your telling of how he didn't really have a plan to land the plane. He had a plan to get Brexit, to get the vote but nothing for after and nothing to make it actually reality. And in a way, that's kind of where we are today, isn't it? 
Very much so, you know. And so, yeah, you know, the the solution to trying to write a book about the thing, which you know would come out months after you'd written it, was was to try to look at the deeper forces at work, really, in a way. Um, and I suppose to answer uh, this overwhelming question, right, which is, how does a privileged, modern, you know, prosperous Western European democracy? begin to imagine itself to be intolerably oppressed you know, and and to feel this great self-pity in a way this you know extraordinary sense that it's 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 not what it looks like to everybody else you know which is a, a, a pretty decent place it's actually you know um, it's been enslaved by the European Union and therefore has to break away uh, you see that very proposition is itself is pretty absurd and and therefore, it's very difficult to have a plan because you're responding to a hyped up emotion that really doesn't have a huge amount of practical substance. And that's exactly why this whole story has been so strange, which is, you know, as I was saying, there's a new thing every day in one way, but also there's nothing new ever. You know, it's mm. in a way we're still where we were in June 2016 when when the referendum happened. And this great shock happened, and and then everybody started thinking, well, okay, well, over the next year, something will clarify itself about, you know, what do they want and where are they going and how are they going to do this? Um, and in effect, nothing has. In fact, that was among these little nuggets of great lines throughout the book. One of which was, I think it's about two thirds of the way through the book, where you write, "Brexit is a strange hybrid, a genuine national revolution against the phony oppressor." I guess that's just what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, so, you, you know, I, I don't want to be seen as sneering at people or, or dismissing them. You know, I, I mean, obviously, 17 and a half million people voted for this thing and, and felt strongly about it and still do feel very strongly about it. And we have to take that seriously. Um, so in that sense, I do think it's a genuine national revolution. I think it has these two problems, though, with that. Right. So, so one is that what's the nation? Right. So so which is the nation that's rebelling? Britain is the term we've been using, and you know it's a historic term going back to the 18th century. But this is not a British revolution, right? So Scotland voted very heavily against it. Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, voted heavily against it. It's really an English national yeah. revolution, and that's part of the problem, right? So you've got this English nationalism, which is at the core of it, which doesn't really articulate itself very well or express itself very well. Um, and that that is one of the things that makes it very difficult to respond to what has happened. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, the other problem is that, you know, so much of this is based on misinformation and is based on a sort of exaggeration of the power of the European Union and on stories. But Boris Johnson is, in my view, a pretty terrible politician, but he's he's a great storyteller, right? You remember, he's a... He's a professional journalist. He yeah. very, very successful, very well paid. You know, he, he he made a great career for himself, and he made it out of being funny. You know, and and sort of occupying a strange kind of space, really, between what you would expect from a stand-up comedian and what you would expect from a serious reporter. And he was able to do this because he was sent to Brussels. He was sent to the heart of the European Union uh, by a British newspaper, and. See, the problem with Brussels and, and the European Union is, if you're a journalist, is it's very boring. <laughs> it's really tedious. The stuff that happens there is important, but God, it's slow and consensual, and a lot of it, you know, is is just is the kind of grinding of these wheels. 
So it's a real problem if if you're that journalist. What 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 do you do if you want it, if you're very ambitious and you want to get on page one instead of page fifteen? You make stuff up effectively. You know, you you find little European regulations uh, that are you know really very technical things, and you make them into big issues of national oppression. You know, so, so that's that's what Johnson did. Like eight year olds, eight year olds cannot blow up balloons, as you know, yes. and tea bags cannot be reused. Yeah. except it turns out that that's a Cardiff city regulation, not an EU regulation. Yeah. Just two of the examples that yeah. you... And they're making regulations about coffins. Yeah. You know, they're not going to yeah. allow us to be buried in our own coffins or, you know, and uh, this, I mean, Johnson was really one of the first figures to invent this, but it, everybody copied him, right? Because it was very successful journalistically. And so you got fabulous stories and it's, you almost have to remember there's a kind of Monty Python element to this whole thing, you know, that, that great British sense of humor, or English sense of humor, I suppose I should say, you know, this love of the surreal... This, you know, taking something that's kind of small and 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 not very important and blowing it up into it's a way for thin. Yeah. yeah. How about taking something that's wafer thin? And it's a it's a it's a it's a wafer thin story. You know, <laughs> yeah. it really is. You know, it's a very yeah. good analogy actually. And you know, if you remember what happens with the wafer thin I mint do. in the in the Monty Python sketches, it blows up. I mean, literally, the man blows up. You know, and I do. It, it's this sort of act of blowing yourself up into this outrage over really very silly things. You know, the, the remarkable thing is a lot of these things which are supposed to be the oppression of the European Union, even if they were true, they wouldn't really amount to particularly terrible oppression. Like it's not Hitler or Stalin if you were banning prawn cocktail flavored potato chips, which was Boris Johnson's first big campaign claiming they were. But, but of course, they weren't they weren't true anyway. You know, so, so anybody could go and check. You could walk into a shop in, in London or, or Manchester or whatever, and you could buy your prawn cocktail flavored potato chips. You, you know, so it's, it's a very strange, almost camp kind of act. And of course, it could only be carried out when the European Union was there. You know, it, it, it was meant to be something that was anti-European, but wasn't meant to really take off as a political issue. It wasn't meant to become real and to create this big political crisis. And that's one of the reasons why it's been such a mess, right? The, the people who led it actually didn't believe it was going to happen. They loved the posturing. They loved playing the games. You know, it, it was great fun. But I don't know if anybody remembers seeing Boris Johnson's face on the morning of the, the referendum results. You know, he looked like a man who had, you know, just heard the most appalling news. You know, he was he was white as a ghost. And a lot of the others were the same because they were, you know, you could see them thinking, oh, what have we done? But of course, what happens is people in those circumstances, you know, they just won 17 and a half million votes. So they, they can't turn around and say, actually, folks, this isn't a great idea and we haven't really thought it through, they have to sort of push it further and further and further and make it more and more extreme. So it started out with them saying, look, we'll, you know, we still have a very close relationship with the European Union. Don't worry about it. We'll be in the customs union. We'll be in the single market. It's, it's not going to be a huge change in your lives. But somehow, as these stories go on, you know, they become more and more radicalized and, and, and it ends up with saying, we're going to leave with no deal. You know, we're going to cut ourselves off from Europe entirely. And of course, you can't do that either. So, so it, it, it ends up with this sort of extraordinary mess that we've seen over three years now. Well, there's so many things that you've just touched on that get to the heart of what you write about. One is this idea that the whole point is that we have to be able to inflict more pain on the other person than we're feeling or the other entity than we're feeling ourselves. And that's something that 
England, as you point out, mostly about England, not so much about UK or all of Britain, but it's a particularly English thing from your telling. And two, the idea, which I think is the core of your thesis, which is that this whole thing has much less to do with the EU and England's relationship with the European Union than it does with England itself and England's relationship with itself. Is that accurate? Yeah, superbly so. Yeah, I think you 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 make the point actually more eloquently than, than I do. But I, I, I mean, absolutely, that is really, I suppose, the core of the arguments I'm, I'm trying to make, which is, the, you know, the stuff with the European Union is is unreal. The the really the thing that's really going on here is is England's identity crisis. Really, I mean, a very profound um, uncertainty about what it is and where it's going and what it means. And I think at the heart of this are two things that are in themselves quite obvious, uh, but the way they play out is very strange. And those two things really are the Second World War, uh, the unfinished business of Second World War, and the loss of empire. And of course, these two things happen at the same time with 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 the with the English, right? So they they the Second World War is a very bizarre thing. If you listen to the debates in the House of Commons and you you listen to a lot of the rhetoric, they keep going back to it. You know, the the Dunkirk spirit, the Blitz spirit. You know, Boris Johnson, when Parliament acted to stop him from crashing out with No Deal, he insists on calling it the Surrender Act. You know, as as if it's all about kind of replaying the war. What on earth is going on there? You know, the war was quite a long time ago. A lot has happened since then. But I think one thing that's going on there is. To be fair to the English, they they won or they were on the winning side in you know arguably one of the most important wars in human history, right? You know, we can all see the defeat of Nazism is is not just not just another war, right? It's a huge thing, and they were heroic, you know, particularly in that sort of period, you know, in 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 nineteen forty when you know the, the rest of Europe was was pretty much under Nazi control, and if if Britain had had done a deal with Hitler at that stage, you, you know, European history would have been vastly worse. Um, so th- they deserve enormous credit for, for what they did. But I think what happens to them is something that I don't think has ever happened to anybody else, which is you, you win this major war, and within 10 years, you're looking at the very countries that you fought and defeated doing better than you are. I mean, by the mid-1950s, Britain was in a real crisis uh, economically and in terms of balance of payments and all that kind of stuff. Its economy wasn't growing nearly as fast as, as, as the European economies were. And the three Axis powers, Germany, Italy, Japan, are all absolutely thriving. You know, they're really taking off with their, you know, their new industrial revolutions. And that has never happened to anybody else. And what it leads to is a sense we didn't get what we deserved. You know, mm-hmm. we, we did this huge, big thing, and yet we, we didn't get the future that we deserved out of it. I think, I think that, that stayed in the system somehow. And of course, the other thing that makes this worse is that at the same time you're losing your empire. You know, so so the the, the Brits had had this extraordinary empire. I mean, one of the most amazing the world has ever seen. You know, the, this little island they were controlling. You know, one one quarter of the entire world's population. You know, and and then all of that goes in in the decades after the Second World War as well. So you're left with, I think, this very strange hangover. You know what I call? I think I call the book a kind of zombie imperialism. You know yes. where yeah. you've you, you've lost everything. The all the empire thing is gone, but a, a one thing remains, which is the, the the mentality of empire. So 
Empire, the mentality of empire is binary, right? You're, you're either on top or you're on the bottom. You're either the dominant power or you're submissive. And if you take that into something like the European Union, which, as we were saying, is very boring, consensual, normal, you know, it's 28 countries, you're just one of 28. It, that doesn't fit with this mentality because you, you think, well, hold on a minute. Are we, are we the dominant player here or are we submissive? Well, if we're not dominating it and we're not dominating it, then we must be submissive. It must be dominating us. And this is where you get a lot of this Brexit rhetoric out of, I think. And among the history that you touch on, which two points here about not wanting to appear too American. One is there's a historical point that you make that I'm going to talk about in a second that I wasn't aware of, but really helps advance the story that you're talking about right now. And and then two, man, there are just all sorts of hints and statements and recollections that you note in the book that as I'm reading it, I'm just like, boy, that sounds a lot like a guy I see on my television every night. Yeah. (laughs) So let's get to that part of American. Sorry, but, you know, you came over here, right? Of course. Yeah. So you can't blame me. You've got to expect some of that. But the other point, that historical point, I I guess it was 1962. So this is the point that you were just making, was you're either on top or you're on bottom. And part of the difficulty is acknowledging to oneself, it, it's really a lot of almost psychology that you get into around why Brexit is really about England more than it's about the EU. And I guess it's 1962, the beginning of the turning point and the common union coming together and the refusal by the undersecretary of the Board of Trade of England to even recognize the possibility of a future treaty. And he's meeting with, I guess, some of the European countries and says, by the way, this will never happen. And if it does happen, there will never be a treaty. And if there is a treaty, we're never going to recognize it. And if we don't recognize it, it'll just go on. But we're never going to be a part. And au revoir and bon chance. And he walks out the door. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really extraordinary moment, isn't it? I mean, first of all, the fact that they send, you know, the undersecretary from the Board of Trade, you know, everybody else, this is really serious stuff, you know, and, and these are the heads of state or, or at least the foreign ministers. Remind me, what was the exact meeting again in 1962? So it was the Messina conference, right? And, and it's, it's actually, uh, it, it's just leading up to the Treaty of Rome, which kind of founds what was then called the common market or the European community, mm-hmm. now the European Union. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's, it's uh, the, the Treaty of Rome is, is 1957. And, and this is just sort of the lead up to that. They're kind of planning it. And 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 so the, the they're very serious about it, and, and you know we know that because it happens. Uh, but the British think this will never happen, so they just send a kind of fairly junior official along, and he just delivers this magnificently arrogant speech about you know this is never going to happen, as you say. And if it w- if it did happen, you know we wouldn't want anything to do with it. Um, and then he and throws course, in the French, and then he throws in the French expression at the end. Uh, the bit of French, yes, yes, yeah. 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 How can, how can you get yeah. more arrogant? Yeah. Well, you know, speak yeah. French. You know, and and of course that is that is one of the huge problems with the British attitudes of the European Union all along, right? Which is. That they are not through their own choice, you know. That they chose not to be in it at the start, and therefore they don't ever feel, even when they join it, they don't really feel that it's their project, you know, that they belong to it, that they can, they can really help to shape it. They always feel that they've kind of joined because they know their choice, you know. I mean, brutally, they joined because 
once it happened, so they thought it wouldn't happen, but once it did happen, once you had this very powerful block with, with Italy, Germany, um, France, and then the three Benelux countries, it was going to start determining the economic shape of Western Europe. Mm. And if you weren't in it, it didn't really matter. It, it was like this was going to be a, a big planet and it was going to exert a gravity on, on, on Britain. Um, and the Brits were very slow to realize that, you know, and, and so they began to understand in the 1960s, they started applying for membership. And of course, to make it worse, to be fair to them, right, when they do apply, they're twice vetoed by General de Gaulle, by the French who didn't want them in. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's one, it's bad enough to sort of have to swallow your pride and say, mm. oh, God, we were wrong about this thing. Uh, we better join up. And then when you do this, <laughs> they say, no, you're not getting in, you know, and, and then you eventually get in at the third time of asking. And it's sort of, you're getting in by kind of saying, well, look, we don't have any choice, really. This thing is profoundly affecting us. And therefore, we've got to be in it so that we, we have an influence. We're a member. We can we can have a vote. We can have our voice heard. And, of course, this is a problem that's not, not going to go away. Even if you leave, they still do have their trade with, 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 with the European Union. They're still going to be very profoundly affected by what happens there. And they're not going to have a say in it. You know, it, it, it actually doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, just, just strictly speaking from that point of view. Uh, but, you know, for all the other reasons, this is, this is the way it's unfolded. And I think you want to get to the American question as well, because that is a part of it, certainly. <laughs> You're an excellent producer as well as a book writer <laughs> and podcast host. I do want to pick up on the point that you were just making about whether it makes sense. And, of course... The question that's on everyone's mind, which is what's next. But I just, you know, the, some of the things that you write, populist demagogues who are unable to tell the truth really do not make for the best political writers. Mm -hmm. There's another line in your chapter on self-pity. The more highly we think yep. of ourselves, the sorrier we feel for ourselves when we do not get what we know we deserve. You then attribute to Nigel Farage in this section on food and drink it, uh, about him. Th this yeah. is your writing. The conspicuous consumption of unhealthy things is not marginal to the appeal of Brexit because Farage is always walking around with the beer, a, a kind of workman's beer, I, I guess, and supporting junk food, etc. And you continue to write – it's the literal embodiment of rebellion against the bullies who tell us what to do. The, yeah, quote, yeah. clever people who think they know better than the real people. A, a couple more here that you write. As you mentioned, Boris Johnson didn't expect the Brexit win and, and that look on his face. You know, November 8th, I, I guess, would, into the morning of November 9th in 2016 uh, over here, the face of the winner of the election didn't look like he had expected it necessarily. And then you talk about exaggerating or even lying about things like eight-year-olds not being able to blow up balloons and tea bags and and coffins and stretching the truth, if not outright telling lies. And as you write, you cannot expose a naked man. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. What book were you writing? Who, who were you writing about? <laughs> Uh, you know, you you put it really well, Chris, because uh, you know the parallels are very, very strong, and and they're not accidental. I mean, let's remember, you know, there was a lot of American involvement in in the Brexit campaign. We now know, you know, in in some ways, the Steve Bannon and yeah. the Mercer family and Cambridge Analytica, 
they really used the Brexit uh, referendum because uh, it's it's only what five, five five months before the American presidential election. They use yes. it as a dry run. You know, they they test out a lot of the same techniques. Um, you know, particularly all the online stuff. You know that this is where they're really finding out. They've got all this Facebook data that they've stolen. How does it work? How do you how do you how do you influence people in this way? Um, so we know they're kind of part of the same nexus in 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 many ways. But I think I think you're absolutely right. It goes way beyond that. You know, which is is in part to do with the 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 persona of the leader. You know, who gets away with with lying, who who manages to create this idea that it really doesn't matter whether you're telling telling the truth or not what what matters is that you're somehow authentic you know your own supporters in a way the more outrageous you are the, the more you depart from evidence or from science or from any kind of expertise this sort of proves that you're you know you speak your mind you're a real mm. authentic person you know you've a lot of that same stuff uh, going on on both sides of the atlantic but i think also underneath this and I, I'd be interested in what you think about this, but I, I think there's a similar kind of mechanism at work, psychological mechanism, which is about the appropriation of victimhood. You know, mm. so uh, to put it very crudely, how do relatively privileged white men start positioning themselves as the real victims here? We're the real victims here. You know, <laughs> it's not those people of color or those poor people or you know the others uh are women uh you know or the downside of the inequality gap yeah it's not that side of the equation yes yeah it's it sort of takes something that is real you know obviously there are very many people in britain and in america who who have good reasons to feel oppressed you know to feel marginalized and all the rest of it but it's not really addressing why are you marginalized? You know, what, what are the economic conditions? What, 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 you know, what's happened to your wages? What's happened to your community? It displaces it onto this sort of almost ethnic sense of victimhood, you know, and, and, and I suppose this is, this goes back to the thing that you started with, you know, this idea of pain, you know, that somehow we can, we can deal with our own pain, if we feel we're inflicting more pain on other people, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a strange kind of psychological mechanism. And Trump is brilliant at, at manipulating that, you know. And, brilliant at that. Yeah. Every day there's something. And, you know, most recently when we're having this conversation, uh, announcing that the day after the election next year, we will be pulling out fully from the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah. Every yeah. day yeah. coming up with something that yeah. tweaks mostly liberal elites. Yes. That's the opposition and the victimizers. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this idea that somehow, uh, you know, all expertise, yes. instead of being expertise, it becomes elitism, you know, yeah. um, instead of being, you know, attempts to help us understand ourselves and what's going on around us. It it becomes, you know, appalling bullying, telling us what we can and can't do. How dare these people, uh, you know, and uh, of course this fed into the Brexit narrative because you could sort of invent this idea of these remote bureaucrats over in Brussels who were telling you what to do. Uh, but of course, Trump's war on science, you know, the, 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 the mm. absolute um, dismantling of, of scientific expertise, the denial of climate change, you know, uh, it's, it's, it is very much all, all part of the same 
but it's the same rhetoric, but also the same way of doing politics and and of undermining any notion that there might be an objective truth. And look, you know, I mean, you and I were journalists. We we, we don't we don't believe that we are, we know all the truth or we don't believe that the truth is a single thing which can be captured, you know, perfectly at any given moment. Correct. But there's a huge difference between at least attempting to do your best to get as close to the truth as possible, which is what I hope we do. And, and this new rhetoric, which is to say, you know, what it, is it, truth? it really doesn't matter. It's, it's the, the people who are trying to do that are, are just doing it to try to bully you and they're making it up. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a very powerful thing. And it, it, it's, it happened actually one of the smartest people in the Brexit campaign, a guy called Michael Gove, who was government minister at the time, kind of co-leader of the, the Leave campaign with Boris Johnson. I mean, actually said directly when, you know, when it's put to him, you know, experts are saying this might be, might be catastrophic. <laughs> he says, you know, we've had enough of experts. People have had enough. They don't want to listen to these people anymore. Mm. You know, and this is a guy who has like a, the benefit of an, uh, an Oxford University education. You know, that was one of the disgusting things about this whole idea is, of course, that very often, it's being manipulated by people who, you know, are glorifying ignorance, but themselves have had all the privileges of, of, of being brought up and going to private schools and going to university and, you know, ha- having all of that uh, access to, to this. Funny how that works. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in terms of your analysis and to just dismiss with all self-awareness and embrace narcissism as tightly as I can, <laughs> the very end of your book. And, and then I want to close by asking you what everyone wants to know, which is what in the heck is going to happen next? But at the end, again, this connection to thinking about what's happening here, you write, Brexit is really just the vehicle. This is the conclusion of your whole point that it's much less about the EU and much more about England. You write, Brexit is really just the vehicle that has delivered a fraught state to a place where it can no longer pretend to be a settled and functioning democracy. It is time to move on from the pretense that the problem with British democracy is the EU and to recognize that its primary problem is with itself. If there is ever to be a time after Brexit, it will come when the people who share the current British state really do begin to negotiate with each other collectively and honestly about who they are and where they belong. That speaks, I think, as well to people here. Is that speaking for England, speaking for UK, speaking in terms of Brexit, is that possible? Yeah, I I, I really hope so. You know, um, you see, both with Trump and with Brexit, you know, what people like us, I suppose, what we do, you look back and you say, well, okay, you know, these are the forces that led to this. Uh, and you hope you're doing that with some accuracy. But, of course, there are other forces. There are other things at play. There, there are there are better angels <laughs> of our nature, you know. Mm. There's nothing wrong with with England or with being English, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in being English. There's nothing wrong with taking pride in being American. You know, there are there are fantastic traditions and and energies and and and, and sources of ethics and values in, in 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 both of these cultures. You know that 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 can have a different kind of political expression. Uh, I I think in the Brexit case, the fact is because it's not really about the European Union, it, it means very obviously that Brexit can't deal with anything, right? You know, they can do Brexit and they can go through all this pain themselves, 
but it's not really about the European Union in the first place. So therefore, it's not going to actually answer those questions for them. They're going to have to find some way of being English. You know, maybe the UK is over. You know, maybe what we're seeing is the end of the UK. Maybe we'll have an independent Scotland. Mm. Maybe Northern Ireland will join with the Republic of Ireland and a United Ireland. You know, maybe this this whole system is is going to be gone in 15 years time but it's going to leave the english with themselves and 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 i i still have a kind of optimism you know that because brexit doesn't answer any of these questions they're going to have to find other answers you know they're going to have to try to find another way of thinking about themselves and and being proud of themselves you know and actually saying we're better than this and it's very arrogant for me as an outsider to say the same to Americans, but you know, America's better than this, for God's sake. You know, I mean, um, the, the the shock of Trump maybe quite rightly has woken people up to the fact that you know that there are very fundamental problems and there are very fundamental democratic and economic problems. Uh, but but also, you know, what what you're, if you love America, and actually most people around the world too, it's it's painful to watch someone like trump and you know that that version of what america is supposed to be Mm. isn't actually one that most of us recognize as being the certainly not the only truth and certainly not i think the one that the majority of people um in america itself uh, wish to be represented by and so I, i think we have to hold on to the idea that um you know that these are huge upheavals that we're going through uh, and really, it's a very simplistic message, maybe. But what what are they telling us? Right? What they're telling us is that gross inequality is incompatible with democracy. Right? Mm. Democracy, which we you know we we all I, I would hope adhere to as an ideal. What does it say to us? It says, you know, we, we, we all matter equally. You know, the, the vote is not just the sort of thing about electing a government, it's saying each and every one of us is, is as important and dignified a human being. And that's why we get to choose who rules us, you know. Uh, but that's ultimately incompatible with if you've got this growing further and further inequality in your, in, in your societies. And this is why a lot of this stuff is global. It's not just in Britain and America, you know, it's, it's, it's running across a lot of Europe, a yes. lot of Asia. Uh, you know, so so, and of course, you know the big thing which has been happening s- since the Reagan Thatcher years, you know, the 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 the, the early nineteen eighties, you know, yeah. has just been this pattern of inequality, and 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 the the promise of democracy is fundamentally a problem of or a, a promise of equality, and if we don't get back to that basic promise of equality, then it's not surprising that democracy is in trouble. That growing inequality creates a social tension that at some point becomes, I fear, unsustainable. It's yes. just that social tension becomes too great. And so to close out, Finton, and looking forward, how should we be thinking about this period between now and December 12th? That's when there's the election in the UK. What should we be watching for? How should we be thinking about it? Well, it's going to be absolutely fascinating because uh, Boris Johnson is—he's very like Trump in one sense, in another sense. Well, he's a gambler, right? You know, so he ups the ante, right? He so so what he's done is remember he's he's forced this election, right? This guy was in you know was in office. He's the one who's decided to risk everything on this. 
Now his his gamble is right that uh, he will he knows he's going to lose quite a lot of seats in in Scotland and in, in in some areas of England, but he thinks he can really do a Trump right. So you know he's looking and saying, well, Trump won one big in some old democratic working class heartlands. Yep. Now, what he's saying is, I can repeat that. I can do that in the Midlands and the north of England, which are Labour parties. What's the equivalent to the Democratic Party? The Labour Party, old working class heartlands. A lot of those people. Reagan voted, Democrats. The Reagan Democrats. The, the, exactly. The, yeah. The equivalent of that. Thatcher Democrats, perhaps. Uh, yeah. And well, you know, I suppose it's 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 sort of Brexit break, Democrats. If, you, if that's not if that's not too mad. Okay. You know, uh-huh. in a sense that using Brexit as the wedge issue, which will separate those people from their traditional allegiances to left of center politics. He thinks it can, you know, bring them to the right. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't, I, I you know, who, who knows? Like it, it, it's a very, very volatile situation. And, the, you know, they have a very odd kind of first past the post system where you could, you could, you can win, an election in a constituency, maybe with 30% of the vote. So if there's four or five different parties, who, who the hell knows how it's going to work out. But my, my instinct, and, and you can play this back when I'm wrong, but <laughs> is, I, I don't think he's going to win enough of those Labour Party heartland seats. And therefore, if I had to predict it, I would say, you know, on December 13th, we're going to be looking again at a, at a hung parliament, at a, you know, a parliament in which there's no real majority. Now, if that is the case, I think Brexit could be over. You know, I, I, that that they can't get it through Parliament. So mm. what? You know, the only thing they can do then is go back and ask the people again. But this time, remember, they would be asking the people not about a kind of abstract proposition, which is, wouldn't it be great if we could leave the European Union and have all the benefits? Which is what people were told. You can leave the club, but you can play tennis anytime you want. Or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know that was that was what they were told. This time, of course, it's very different. Which is, this is what Brexit looks like. You know, because you, you have an incredibly tediously and painfully negotiated withdrawal agreement. And so people can say, oh, is that what it looks like? Well, actually, it doesn't look that exciting now, does it really? Um, so I I still would not rule out the fact that we could be facing into 2020, into March, April, maybe, you know, looking at the whole question being put back to the, to, to, to the people. Uh, and if that happens, again, my my bet would be that you would have a, not a huge majority, but a, a decent enough majority to remain in the European Union. So that's one way the story can end, right? which is that it all goes away. Um, but even if it does end there, I think the messages really have to be heard, you know, for all the reasons we've been talking about that it was never really about this. You know, it's, <clears throat> this is a, a country and a political system that really needs to, to, to talk about itself and, and reform itself, I think, pretty, pretty radically. So we, even if the Brexit story were to finish next year, the the ripples are going to be you know reaching the shore for decades to come. I think. Yeah, as you put it facetiously, the gift will keep on giving. Yes, <laughs> Fintan, thank you, thank you for your time and a terrific book that really helps give context and understanding. Certainly for folks over here to understand it, but I'm sure it does the same for folks in England and the UK and the EU. So thank you for your time and for all of the context and explanation that you gave. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. 
that was my conversation with Fintan O'Toole. My thanks to Fintan for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.